You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, we did it. Revelation week. Here we go. Uh, I hope it's been a good experience for you. I know it's been a great experience for me in preparation, uh, starting from Genesis, going all the way through. Uh, just because you go to seminary does not mean you spend time in every book of the Bible uh, all the time. So it stretched me as well. Uh, so uh, we're going to obviously still be in books of the Bible as we go forward. We believe the Bible is God's word to us. Uh, but the fact we had to do an overview sermon of every book of the Bible starting back in the new year, and now here we are at the end of the year, and Revelation is pretty exciting. Uh, so we're in the book of Revelation today. Don't freak out. I promise it's not as weird uh, oftentimes as commercialization of it uh, makes it seem to so many people. Also want to echo what Ashlyn said and encourage you to give to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Uh, we uh, believe churches can do a whole lot more together than they can apart. Uh, that's why we're not a non-denominational church. We don't want to be lone rangers. We want to support cooperatively and collectively the work of God and the gospel going forward around the world. So if every person who called City Church their home gave a gift to Lottie Moon in addition to the financial support you already give to your church to allow this church to function and go forward with the Great Commission, this specialized offering to Lottie Moon, if every person who calls City Church their home just gave something, any kind of gift towards Lottie Moon offering, that's a serious donation we make to the International Mission Board to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Uh, so I'd love for you to consider doing that and, to, and play your part in financially supporting the Great Commission. Our resources that God gives us are mission ammunition to take the gospel to the world. That's what we believe, so please take part in that. Let's pray together, then we'll jump into the book of Revelation. Father, we're thankful for the word of God that you have given us. You have spoken and given your people exactly what you want us to know. And we ask that we will be faithful to finishing this great story of the scriptures pointing to Christ today in this book of Revelation. Lord, I ask that as, the, as this book actually promises us that blessed is the one who reads aloud these words, who hears these words, I ask we'll all be spiritually blessed as your word promises because of these rich words you have given us in the scriptures. So I ask we find confidence in Christ today, confidence in the authority of the scripture, confidence in our creator. I ask that you be with all the churches in our city today as they gather, be with every single pastor, every single person uh, that's gathering in church buildings today across the city. And I also ask you to keep the enemy out of this place, out of our town, and that we will be found faithful as followers of Christ who actually believe that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Lord, we ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Revelation chapter 1. This is John in exile on the island of Patmos, and he says this, the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, whatever he saw. And this is a cool promise here. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, shout out, blessed for reading it, and blessed are those who hear the words, shout out to y'all, of this prophecy, and keep what is written in it. They're instructions for believers of how to live faithfully, because the time is near. What time? The return of Christ. What may seem like forever and long to us is not long to God. He does not see time the same way we see time. John, he's introducing himself as a writer, to the seven churches in Asia. So these are actually letters written to real churches with real people. He says, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits which many people believe is actually the Holy Spirit represented in seven being the perfect number of God before his throne. 
And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Basically, everything that was promised in the Christmas story, everything I should say that was declared by the angels, is all now being proven true ultimately here in Revelation. To him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood. So here's this like very famous book of Revelation that makes people go, wow, this is weird, what's happening? There's so many things here. Some think doom and gloom. And out of the gate in the letter, few verses in, he says, to him who loves us. That this is what it's about. Who has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him. It's also a worship letter. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is all about Jesus Christ and the greatness of his name and what he's done for his people. He says, Look, he's coming with the clouds. There actually will be a literal second coming, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega. It's the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. The one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. He says, I, John, your brother, and partner in the affliction. He's been persecuted too. Kingdom and endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He was persecuted, sent into exile, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. Again, these are letters of instructions to believers in churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man because he was captivated by the holiness of God here. He laid his right hand on me, an act of grace, an act of love, and said, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever and hold the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, because of who I am and what I've done, that I am alive, write what you have seen, what is, and what will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So these letters are guides for us. John writes to seven churches, not six, not eight, he actually writes to seven. We're actually going to do a sermon series in the spring on the seven churches of Revelation and do a different church every week for seven weeks. I'm excited about that. But these seven churches are signified by seven lampstands and seven spirits before the throne room of God. And seven here is no accident. It's a symbolic number. The seven here represents the whole church in every age. So it's also written to us. And seven was God's 
perfect number. After he created the world in six days, on the seventh day he rests. Seven is a symbolic number throughout the scriptures. So God gave revelation to the church, not so we could just speculate about things, but we would obey it. Not merely study it but actually obey his word. And there's two main themes, I would say, in Revelation. One is practical, and one is theological. The practical is that the church should remain faithful, that we should endure, that faithfulness matters to God, that we cannot compromise, cannot sell out, that we actually believe these things to be true about the risen Christ, that if he actually rose from the grave, we can believe everything else that he says. We should endure and be faithful. The theological theme is that God should be worshiped, He should be glorified for fully accomplishing his plan of salvation. That we have assurance that God will accomplish his purposes and bring all things to their consummation in Jesus. So Revelation reminds the believers that they are blessed. They are secure in God's love because of the blood of Christ covering our sin. We're adopted into his family. We're one with Christ. We've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. So the goal of Revelation is not that readers will live in terror of coming persecution, reading signs of the end of the age everywhere they look. It was written to point believers back to God's promises and forward to the ultimate realization of all the promises being culminated in Jesus Christ. One Asian theologian, and I can't pronounce his name, Mogenke, very faithful theologian, he says it stokes perseverance, whatever may come. He says, consider Revelation 14, 13. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. He says, following an entire chapter that anticipates persecution in in Revelation 13, John reminds believers that they are blessed, secure in God's love, and Christ's victory. And because they're certain of the end, they can endure in the present. This book is as much about the present as it is about the future. So now that Jesus has addressed the seven churches, he calls John into heaven. I can't imagine what that would have been like with the promise, come up here, this is chapter four, verse one, and I will show you what must take place after this. So before being shown any end time realities, John is granted a vision of God and of the Lamb. And only then is God's sovereign plan for history, which is represented by a scroll written that is to be revealed, and there are seven seals that are to be opened. Here's what John writes. Then I saw on the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides sealed with seven seals. I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look in it. I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look in it. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, all Old Testament language here, and that's throughout the book of Revelation, is Old Testament language over and over again, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals, as in he is the one worthy to be the author of all of history. Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb, standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He went and took the scroll out of his right hand to the one seated on the throne. 
when he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom of priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also the living creatures and the elders. Their number was countless, thousands plus thousands of thousands. They said with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them say blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. That it truly is all centered on Jesus. That Jesus would conquer, he conquered by his blood. Not even by might or by power, by his redemptive work on the cross. The seals are open. They really can foreshadow or we could correspond with the plagues against Egypt back in the Old Testament. Now the sixth seal shows the enemies of God at the final judgment. The destruction of the first heaven and earth. And then we see the seventh seal. And he says this, after I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, restraining the four winds of the earth so that no one could blow on the earth or on the sea or any tree. Then I saw another angel rising up from the east who had the seal of the living God. He cried out in a loud voice to the four angels who were allowed to harm the earth and the sea, don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we seal the servants of our God on their foreheads, that the people of God, the church, are spared from the judgment and the wrath of God and the destruction of all sin. The servants of God are to be sealed on their foreheads, it will say. That God's seal, and it's figurative here, it's an analogy, indicates ownership. Revelation 14.1 is where you'll see that. In the ancient world, it was common practice for a master to mark his slaves on their foreheads as proof of ownership. Notice it's the servants of God, they're called servants, who have the seal. God's seal also indicates his protection, as is made clear from the background in the Old Testament, we see that in the book of Ezekiel, that God spares his people from execution by placing a mark on their foreheads. This in turn recalls the Passover, when the angel of death passed over every house of Israel that had the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorpost. But every firstborn of Egypt was not spared the wrath of God. See, the seal of Revelation 7 makes clear that God continues to protect his people and the fact that God has ownership of us as our heavenly father and we've been sealed ultimately by the spirit protects us from any fear of the coming judgment of God. The seals which could bring horror for the believer bring assurance that God will bring about justice on earth. Chapter 7, I heard the number of the sealed 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the Israelites. And then here's where Revelation starts to get a little strange. And I don't mean this in, as a as degrading or a mockery to anyone who thinks differently about Revelation than I do, okay, if you studied it. So please hear that. So 144,000 is also one of those things in Revelation where people throughout time have tried to go, well, who are the 144,000? The Jehovah's Witnesses claim that they were the 144,000. 
And then once they already had 144,000, they were like, uh, 144,000 and then their descendants. You know, it was that kind of idea. And, and kind of uh, prophecy movies and left behind books and all those kind of things, the 144,000 were always speculated as who could they be? Maybe they're this group, maybe they're that group. And a lot of the futuristic kind of, I guess you could say, really extravagant reading of Revelation really did not happen until the early 19th century. So Christians for years and years and generations and generations would not have written the book as everything is to be identified and seen as an actual literal event that is taking place. So we're talking like seminary classrooms that were orthodox and theologically sound. They would never have had, for, until the 19th century, really in America, would not have had conversations about Revelation being this sort of kind of left behind series book kind of idea. Uh, so I don't read that from a lens of kind of American popular sensationalism with Revelation. For the 144,000, you just kind of have to keep reading to see what this is symbolic towards. Remember the 12 tribes of Israel. So after this, just keep reading. I looked and there was a vast multitude. So what does 144,000 represent? The promise God made to Abraham that he would make him a great nation as far as the stars in the sky would be the number of it. It says this, from every nation, tribe, people, language, which no one could number standing before the throne and before the lamb. They were clothed in white robes. Why? Because we're the bride of Christ who had been made whole, made new, and palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who was seated on the throne and to the lamb. The 144,000 represents symbolically the fact that God has fulfilled his promise to Abraham and that he is having worship from every tribe and tongue and language from across the entire globe. That it's all happening here and now in this vision. How incredible is that? The promises of God realized and fulfilled. Abraham fulfilled. Old Testament promise. New Testament fulfilled. And then these trumpets blast to announce God's judgment on the world. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have now come. Because the accuser, Satan, of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night. That's one of Satan's great strategies is to accuse you make you feel like you're still guilty, that you're still unworthy, that you're still condemned. You know what it says? He's been thrown down. He has been defeated. And how was he defeated? By the blood of the lamb. That the cross made Satan's accusations of you no longer true. By the word of their testimony, if they did not love their lives to the point of death. So in chapter 13 is where it gets really interesting. In the first half of chapter 13, we're introduced to a beast from the sea. This beast is broadly representative of the political sphere. We can basically say Caesar. In the second half of chapter 13, we're introduced to the beast from the earth. And this beast is broadly representative of the religious sphere. If the first beast, we could say, is really the perversion of the state, kind of godless leadership, elevating state to godlike status... The second beast, we could say, is the perversion of actual true honoring of God worship. He says in verse 11, Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth that had two horns like a lamb. The imagery comes from Daniel chapter 8, where Daniel sees a vision of a ram with two horns. And that's where the picture comes from, but what it points us to is really a counterfeit Christ. Here's what the Gospel Coalition says. This beast looks like Christ, 
the lamb, but speaks the lies of the dragon, the accuser, that is the devil. Remember, the first beast is the perversion of the state, and the second beast is the perversion of Christianity. We shouldn't expect false religion to appear immediately and obviously false. We should expect other religions to talk about love, to talk about morality. We should expect there to be many similarities, some real, some perceived, between actual true Christianity and false Christianity. We should expect false Christian cults or false teaching in general, false religion, and perversions of the gospel to speak highly of Jesus. We should expect them to talk even about the cross, religious language and themes, which is why we must be discerning and wise, because oftentimes false teaching sounds good enough. It sounds just about right, because it uses words like God, faith, love, hope, Bible, So the beast may be like a lamb, but if you're discerning, you're going to hear the voice of a dragon, which is the devil. So number 666, it's one of those things where if it's like on your apartment door, people freak out and think they need to move. If it's your address in your neighborhood, you get all antsy. 666. It's not meant, y'all, to be a riddle hiding the name of the beast. 666 is simply the name and number of the beast. God's number seven, perfect holy God. So what would represent sinful mankind? Not seven, but six. You don't need to move from your apartment if your number is 666. You need to move from your worldview if you worship man instead of God. What have we seen with this second beast? He's counterfeit. He leads people into false religion. So how do you express a numerically counterfeit religion? Seven, Kevin DeYoung writes, is the number of perfection and holy completion in the book of Revelation. Seven churches, seven lampstands, seven eyes, seven seals, seven trumpets, on and on. The number six, then, would be the number of imperfection and a holy incompletion. If seven is the number for God, then six is the number that most resembles but is not God, namely man. In other words, 666 is man's counterfeit of the holy God. The African Bible commentary puts it well. The beast seems to be near perfection and almost messianic. It is, after all, a caricature of the lamb who was slain, but it is not perfect, and that makes all the difference. It is actually diabolically diabolically and utterly opposed to God. The number 666 represents a threefold falling short of perfection. Dragon, beast, false prophet, but it is close to perfection and has most of the hallmarks of truth so we can easily be deceived. No wonder we need wisdom in how we live this life. All which is to say, whatever you think, of the way the medical establishment and the media or our politicians have handled any issue throughout history, including most recently a global pandemic, the mark of the beast has nothing to do with vaccines or microchips or the European Union or the president you don't like or whoever it may be. Nothing to do with any of that. It's not the gators, um, it's not just kidding. It's not anything that you would think it would be. It's a representation of man's rebellion against God. 
Now, how does this work? If doctors or politicians or members of the media or anyone else for that matter elevates himself, elevates himself to a position of God-like authority and knowledge, then that is what Revelation warns Christians against. Whatever or whomever appears as true Christianity or godlike status in order to draw us away to some human counterfeit, that is the work of the beast, and his number is 666. Man rather than God. It's important that we understand such things. So you should be concerned when people elevate science to godlike status. Instead, we should thank God for science. And we should think that expertise matters. You should be very concerned when people elevate politicians to a certain status. Very concerned. Instead, we should thank God for politicians and vote for people who we think best represent our values and participate in the system. So just because someone in America, America's not even mentioned in Revelation, not one time. Not one time. So here's what happens. There'll be like an email that goes out and it'll say things like, the first three letters of this person's name are this. Did you know if you do this and then put the Greek word here and reverse that and then go outside and turn around three times and come back in and that this actually spells out this, which means this, which means Obama? <laughs> That's what people do. And these things get sent around. So these American Christians send out these like Facebook and share these things and oh my gosh, a vaccine. And like, like you can say, you know what, I'm, I'm pro-vaccine and I'm against a vaccine mandate and not mention Revelation because it has nothing to do with it. Nothing. Nothing. Or it could be for a mandate and again, nothing at all to do with Revelation. So please have confidence in the fact that God is sovereign and he's not writing Revelation freaking out about what the latest media trend is in the United States. But it's easy to get pulled into all that because, again, it became very popularized, very mainstream, very sensationalized of how Revelation was interpreted, but we do not have any, we could say, uh, you know, kind of legacy or shoulders to stand on of scholarship or theological studies that produces Revelation in a way that it's been produced on the mainstream the last, let's say, 200 years. And that's a very short time in church history. So in chapter 15, we see plagues and bowls which represent God's really huge, massive, we could say climactic judgment throughout the age, which are reserved for those of God's enemies who refuse to repent. Like we must repent and give our lives to Christ. Either we're going to stand before God's judgment or we're going to stand in God's grace with the mark of God across our foreheads. We see the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. We're meant to see that the God of the Old Testament is the same God right now victorious in Jesus Christ. But his redemptive work through Christ is far greater now than anything that has gone before. Jesus is the greater Moses. In Revelation 16, 21, we see that God's climactic judgment does not lead many to repentance, sadly. Rather, those who are under it continue to rebel. They continue to curse God. And it doesn't matter what comes their way, they continue to do so. C.S. Lewis once wrote that the gates of hell are locked on the inside. 
meaning in the end that God's enemies are hardened in their sin. They're not sorry for it. The rebellion will continue forever. They wanted nothing to do with God, and as a result, they got exactly what they wished and what they asked for. We see hallelujah because the Lord, our Lord God, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory because the marriage of the Lamb has come. The bride and the groom together, his pride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear bright and pure. That that's what happens to your conversion. That God is growing you and using the experiences in your life and making you more like Jesus. But from the time of your conversion, you know how he sees you? that your sins are washed white as snow. You are the bride prepared for her groom without blemish, without wrinkle, as I said at the moon last week, nor any other thing. This is what we celebrate in Revelation, that all this has finally come to pass ultimately. What was true of us spiritually in the already has not fully been consummated in the not yet, meaning all the promises of God are right now but we wait for a world that is to come where all God's promises are answered fully yes in Christ. This is that happening. Let's skip to Revelation 21, person doing the slides. Sorry, love you, mean it. (laughs) Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Think a perfect garden of Eden restored, but not in one location between the Tigris and the Euphrates, but for all the earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I also saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem. Think that everything that is the temple now fully realized and consummated. Coming down out of heaven from God. Temple meaning that God has come to meet with man once and for all. Prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice in the throne. Look, God's dwelling place is with humanity. I read last week at the moon that about Jesus how he has come and dwelt among us. This is the ultimate realization of that, and he will live with them. Like, that is, that is heaven. Like, cartoons make heaven about angels and, like, clouds and all these things taking place, when heaven is going to be the understanding of a new earth, a new Jerusalem, a perfect Jerusalem, a new temple that really is this, this we could say, the symbolization of God always being with his people. We have access to God throughout all the rest of history because of the work of Christ on our behalf. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and be their God. A personal God whose ultimate triumph of all of history is to be with his people. You think about that, to be with his people. There's some really good news for us. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Every tear. All the effects of sin, the brokenness as a result of sin in this world, it will no longer be. Why the accuser, Satan, he is defeated for all eternity, for all history. Death will be no more. Death will be no more. I don't have to do any more funerals. Death will be no, you don't got to write any more wills. No more tears. The ultimate Consequence of sin, death. The wages of sin is death. That's why it took a death, Jesus, to atone for our sins. Not words, blood, an actual death. It has been defeated. 
And the lamb, the one who was slain, is now victorious, resurrected with his bride forever. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more. Like this is revelation. This is what it's pointing us towards. Why? Because the previous things, they've passed away. They're gone. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. There's a renewal that takes place. A new heaven, a new earth, new bodies. He's making all things new. And again, the best way to understand it is an even more perfect Garden of Eden. But not the ability to sin. A perfect Garden of Eden. He also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. I want my people to know, he's saying. I want these seven churches to know so they can remain faithful, that all of this is faithful and true, that God is working sovereignly through history, and he wins. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. You'll never thirst again for all the things you've been thirsting for. The woman at the well in John chapter 4. Jesus told this woman who had been looking for satisfaction in so many different places, was in a tremendous place of brokenness. He told her, he said, you're going to keep drinking this water and you're still going to be thirsty. The water I give you will allow you to thirst no more. To have no more thirst in your life spiritually, here this is fully realized forever. New Jerusalem, a new city, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false or against God, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life, we're told. And at your conversion to Christ, you are written in the Lamb's book of life. We see the leaves of the tree are for healing the nations. Where one tree brought about brokenness, where Adam and Eve ate from the forbidden tree, the forbidden fruit, here is now a tree that brings healing. And there will no longer be any curse. For these promises of Christ are far as the curse is found. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. So think of heaven as, I, I, when I read the Bible, I see it as, people ask me, am I going to know people in heaven? Yeah, absolutely. We're not going to be less intelligent on heaven than we are on earth. But like, think of you actually like living your life, like with your family. And it's hard to grasp this, and our earthly minds can't, I know I can't, but think of it just in a state of complete perfection, unhindered worshiping of God for all eternity. And then the last part. He who testifies about these things says, yes, I am coming soon. And what's the reply? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. That is our prayer in the meantime. Because we know Jesus' coming is good news for us. Not something to fear. At the same time, it should create an urgency in us because the gospel is only good news if it gets there on time. So we need to be able to have conversations. Talk to people about Christ. 
point him to the one who is the exact one he claimed to be, the only one who can repair our broken relationship between God and man, to make it truly about your convictions that you believe this stuff enough or refuse to go quietly. And your relationships, your finances, your priorities, they all are affected greatly. Why? Because you believe that he is the one and that he is coming soon. And as a church, we declare together, amen, come Lord Jesus. It really does change everything. And one day everything actually will be changed and it'll be new. And church, that's the whole story. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your word that you've given it to us, that we can know about you, what we have done, the consequences of that, and then the story of your love of redeeming a people to yourself. What an amazing story it is. 66 books about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that point us there, that show the promises made and the promises kept. Lord, we know that one day the ultimate promise is that Christ will return again. So in the meantime, we declare as a church family, amen, come Lord Jesus. Let that be our conviction, that we believe to be true about Jesus, be more than a hobby or a good luck charm or some sentimental thing we're a part of, but actually the very purpose for our lives. Lord, we are thankful for the blood of Christ. In his name we pray, amen.